0: Hi, I'm Katrina Daniel, and welcome to Primetime Crime, a podcast for people who want to know what goes on behind the scenes of the most notorious trending crime stories, and what's going on in the minds of those involved in those stories. What are the detectives, the judges, the defense attorneys, and the prosecutors thinking? You'll hear it all on Prime Time Crime, the podcast. This is Primetime Crime, and I'm Katrina Daniel. And today's episode should have been held till next Halloween, but it's hot now, thanks to its huge impact on Netflix. We're talking about the Netflix documentary Hotel Cecil, or, as it's known for good reason, Hotel Death. The Cecil Hotel is the scary cool hotel in downtown Los Angeles that has been the scene of enough deaths, disasters, murders, suicides, accidents, and tragedies to fill a small cemetery. And no one has ever been able to pinpoint exactly why. The Hotel Cecil opened in the mid-1920s in what was L.A.'s heyday. But as L.A. moved to the Burbs, the hotel was left behind to decline. And it was forgotten until about 2013 when another death took place. Or was it a murder? The body of a 21 year old college student from Canada, Elisa Lamb, was found floating in the Hotel Cecil's water tank. It was there for about two weeks until people living in the hotel began complaining about the water's strange smell and, even worse, its awful taste. So they opened the hotel's water tank, and there was the dead body of Elisa Lamb. How'd she get there? No one knows. Here's a clip from the Netflix documentary, Crime
1: Scene, Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. We didn't know about the reputation of the hotel. I was just reasoning that it was cheap. You know, we didn't pay loads of money, so you get what you pay for.
0: After a few days of um, staying in that hotel, we realized, yes, it was... um, What's the word? I can't think of a word. It was horrendous. It was horrendous, yeah.
1: About five days into the holiday. Things got worse from that point on, really. I was struggling to sleep. There was a party below us, or well, at least it sounded like that. We noticed there was a smell of weed in the room, um, which was coming through the vent in the bathroom. Also, we noticed um, that the water pressure was very low. we the tap on, Just, why is the pressure blocked? Why is there no water pressure? And the water was quite discolored. It was it was like a uh, a dark color, like a, it had like a brown tint to it.
0: We were brushing our teeth using that water. We were showering in that water. Uh, we did um, drink the water, but it did have a funny taste to it. Um, we complained and moved to a different room, two floors up. The water pressure never got better. It's my special treat to introduce you to Deb Wilker, um, a young woman I used to work with when she was a baby intern. She is now, which says, what about us? Um, she is now a veteran entertainment uh, journalist, um, entertainment and arts journalist. She's on the West Coast. Deb, thanks so much for joining us. Let's talk about the Hotel Cecil. How, um, how did you get interested in it?
1: You know, the Hotel Cecil is such an interesting kind of a weird place. Um, I lived very briefly in 2016, about three blocks from there, in a new, beautiful development. And I remember, and it was just a temporary assignment. I was there for two months. And I remember one night I was walking out the back of the hotel on my way to go to the Ace, which is a place where there were some big events. And I said to the doorman, I'm just going to walk. Is, is this the right direction? And the guy said, oh, no, no, don't go that way. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Don't go that way. I thought I was kind of in a nice area of town because I was in this new building. And I was really naive. I didn't understand where I was. And he said, you know, if you're going to walk over that way, you've got to walk out this side of the building and take this walk. And that was when I learned that the area of LA that I was in was kind of very hit and miss. There was a ton of new development going on. There was brand new Whole Foods and brand new Ralph's Market. But literally one or two blocks away, or not even in some cases, were people and hotels and buildings and businesses so down on their luck, so very much in great despair. And it was such... um, you know, it was such a contrast, and it was sad and difficult and sort of intriguing because it wasn't, it sort of didn't fit a norm. You know, it didn't fit any sort of uh, neighborhood norm, these um, really stark contrasts that you would see.
0: What made you interested in the Hotel Cecil? Was it one of those things that you walk down the street and you go, wow, that is a really cool old building, as, as
1: you may know from our days, way back when, you know, huge Art Deco area in Miami. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've always been fascinated by that architecture and fascinated by the line and the, the look and the way these artists sort of told a story uh, with their design, whether it was in buildings or cars or... Even clothing of that era. And when you walk in uh, to that place, uh, there's a grandeur. And you don't uh, get that feeling, of course, from what we're seeing and reading today. But there is such a grandeur about it. And of course, it is a landmark.
0: Tell us about Elisa Lamb. Why would a young college student go to? the Hotel Cecil in downtown L.A. all by herself.
1: You know, that's kind of one of the great mysteries of this story. Not only, I mean, look, it's not a huge mystery when a woman travels alone. It was years ago. You know, it was kind of a big deal when a woman got on a plane alone years ago. Today, not as much of a big deal, but some of the things about her trip were a little bit strange. The fact that she took uh, trains and buses to make her way down from Vancouver to San Diego. Most people would have just hopped on a plane. It's a pretty quick flight, two hours, two and a half hours. Um, It could be that she had a fear of flying. Um, Nothing abnormal about that. But if you had a fear of flying, why are you taking a big trip? um it's just little things that don't quite add up but then again don't necessarily not add up just enough to pique your interest maybe
0: but again if you had a teenage daughter our 21-year-old daughter in this case the fact that she just got on a, a bus and trains alone and wound up in a cd hotel in downtown los angeles all by herself wasn't like she was in communications there with anyone, as far as we know. And all of a sudden, she's there. You kind of wonder how that could happen.
1: You know, it is completely odd. You know, we don't know what her particular family situation was. We do know, obviously, that when her parents didn't hear from her, they immediately, you know, left into action. So we have to think that she did have what we would call an ongoing a good or normal relationship with her parents. But yeah, as a mom myself, if my daughter said to me, listen, I'm gonna take this trip by myself and I'm gonna take a bunch of trains and buses to get there and I'm gonna stay in this part of town. I think what I might've done is research the part of town my child was going to and gently say, you know, maybe that's not such a great decision. I mean, as all parents and all adults and uh, those of us who have nieces and cousins and other young people in our lives, we always discuss this. And we say, you know, you can't really tell your adult kids what to do. You can only put the information in front of them and say, here's what I would do. Here's the information. I don't think this is a great decision. And I'm just sharing the info with you. That's about all you can do once they are 18, 19, 20, as much as they are still a kid, for sure.
0: I know that when she didn't return home or stay in communication with her family, they got worried and and sent out search parties and called for help and all that. Did she have any mental issues or anything that people are aware of?
1: Well, it's pretty well documented that she was on medication For various issues, including a bipolar issue, but we don't know the depth of it. So it's difficult. You know, throughout this whole case and story, really, there's just enough information to make you think something's wrong that doesn't add up, but there's just not quite enough information to put it all together which is what I think keeps re-peaking everybody's interest in.
0: Also, I think perhaps what peaks people's interest is the closed-circuit video of her, the security camera footage. Describe
1: that to us. You know, the interesting thing, I mean, I, I view this coming uh, at this as a reporter. You know, we know as reporters, when we're putting a story together, we have to have all the elements. You know, you have to have the who, what, where, when, and why. And you've got to have a visual, whether you're working in print, whether you're working in radio even, whether you're working in television, of course, you must have some sort of visual moment as part of your story. And that closed circuit TV video in the elevator, uh, not only the fact that it exists, is what has made this so interesting, but the video is kind of haunting and strange. You know, she goes in, she goes out, she presses the buttons, her her movement is a little static. We don't know because we think it's known that the video was edited, so we don't really know what the exact series of her movements were, but I've often thought in regards to this case that if there were no video, it might not have had the international interest that this story has produced. You know, when you see a person, particularly a young girl who looks a little bit lost, a little bit alone, perhaps worried, uh, perhaps not usual from the way a young girl might look in an elevator, it also produces empathy in people. Any normal adult looking at that video is going to say, Oh, my girl looks like she needs help. Or a little bit of, you know, she's maybe in a little bit of trouble, or maybe she's just a little bit confused. If you were a grown up walking by that elevator, walking in, coming out, or had somehow seen her, you might have stopped. You probably would have stopped and said, Hey, can I help you with something? Are you okay?
0: She looked as though. She was talking to an invisible person. She was making hand gestures that are kind of like Tai Chi, I think is the best way I can describe them. But it looks like she was in a conversation with a ghost. There was nothing there. But <laughs> there wasn't well that you could see, you know, but yeah. she's at the at the edge of the elevator door, at the lip of the door, having kind of a back and forth in and out and so she was talking to someone did it strike
1: you similarly you know I I only saw in my mind the the idea that she was talking to someone like the second and third time that I watched it the very first time that I watched it it just looked to me I guess it was like the mom instinct in me it just looked to me like a girl who needed help like oh my god this person needs something why isn't somebody there that was my first instinct When I looked at it the second time, I was like, what is she doing? Yeah. If talking to someone, again, this doesn't make sense. And my thought was, I hope she got help. And of course, we all know that she didn't. How was the body of Elissa Lamb found? So this is really one of the most horrifying kinds of stories I think any of us could know about, hear about an encounter from really any side of the the picture. Her body was found decomposing, of course, and swollen and with all sorts of other um, ravages of time upon it uh, in one of the hotel's water tanks and had obviously been there a while and unnoticed until, of course, people in the hotel, guests, and residents began complaining about low water pressure, uh, the water looking, uh, you know, horribly discolored with this really, really strange brownish tint to it. And of course, some people even tragically drank it or brushed their teeth with it or whatever it may be. And then, you know, said, oh, not going to do this again, there's something wrong with this water. And of course, brought this um, horrid concern to the hotel management. And hotel management was dumbfounded. You know, if you're the manager behind the front desk of a hotel, or even somebody who's higher up in some management office, your brain isn't going immediately to go to, gee, there must be a person decomposing in our water tanks. You know, if you're the manager of a hotel, you're gonna think, oh God, probably have some kind of plumbing problem. I better get some guys in here, look around. And of course, that's what happened until these gentlemen, you know, exhausted all possibilities. These maintenance workers, one in particular, who, you know, went in depth all around the hotel and then finally was like, we've got to check inside this tank and of course, they found the most horrifying discovery of
0: all. Yeah, that must have been really traumatic for everybody involved. I mean, you know, people who live there. Is there an investigation ongoing? Is there an investigation or they just said it was suicide? There are questions about the suicide because apparently the lid on the water tank is fairly heavy and may have been more difficult for a person of her stature to lift.
1: Yeah, the circumstances of this death, uh, whether it will through time and um, you know, I I can't. The death really can't be explained. Is what it really is. You can talk about suicide and then say, well, how could? It, what did she weigh? Maybe a hundred pounds? Are we talking about, about very, very little. Yeah, <laughs> so quite slight young woman, yes. so, yes. but even that aside, whether slight or not, I don't think any person alone could have lifted that tank cover. So it becomes a guessing game. Was the tank cover possibly somehow left slightly ajar by someone who had checked it at one point? and did it somehow move on its own back to a closed position? Um, Was there someone up on the roof that moved it and then threw her in there? Um, Why were her clothes off? Did she, you know, sometimes when people are in great distress and they're having a uh, kind of serious episode, you know, they'll rip their clothing off and and be in some sort of a panic. Uh, maybe something happened and somebody said, Oh my god, I have to uh now get rid of this woman for some reason. Uh there are so many different scenarios that could have played out on that roof, but none of them are really a satisfactory answer. Did she jump in? Was she thrown in? Was she killed first and then thrown in this tank? Uh, the, the numbers don't add up.
0: She apparently was offered medications. I, was she bipolar, I believe? She'd been diagnosed as such?
1: This is the report, and that's what the medication was to treat. But as we often know, with many drugs, not just drugs for psychological problems, all kinds of drugs. You know, there are blood pressure medications that are used yeah. frankly. So, you know, we don't know. Uh, but if the typical use was for bipolar, this is what the assumption has become.
0: What other unusual happenings have taken place there? I know that, that, uh, reports allude to uh, Richard Ramirez, who was the uh, Night Stalker, and, and another a, a European-slash-Australian serial killer. What can you tell us about
1: those? You know, those are some interesting stories that now, of course, keep re popping up, you know, as people try and tie the present to the past. But there was an interesting um, I don't know whether it was a reporter or whether a scientist did it, but somebody had run a batch of statistics that the sort of oddball happenings at the Cecil, whether the fact that it was at one time inhabited by a serial killer who used it as his own base or other deaths that had occurred there, percentage wise, was really not that different. Per the number of people in a given population for any situation, that it has perhaps just been sort of magnified uh, because of the weirdness of the activity. The Ramirez thing is rather strange, the fact that it was its sort of base of operation. But then again... If you look at that area of downtown, the fact that somebody sort of slipped in, slipped out, did something horrid, and slipped back in, would have been very tough to be noticed. See, and that again brings me to the what the heck is the cute little
0: delicate flower college girl from Vancouver doing in a seedy? run-down hotel in the middle of what would be for her nowhere you, yeah. you could understand it if she was going to melrose you could understand it if she was going to venice beach you could sure understand it if she's going to malibu but downtown la and this creepy old hotel it
1: just doesn't compute yeah that's a great uh that's a great point because you know when people of course when they think about los angeles they think about the hot spots that yeah we talk about all the time, Malibu and, you know, Rodeo Drive, and people talk about maybe going to Hollywood Walk of Fame. And yeah, see, Sunset see. Drive.
0: You don't talk about Main Street, downtown L.A. in this CDO no. hotel. There weren't other young people there for her to hang out with.
1: Well, the, the other really bizarre thing, you don't know, think the stereotype probably globally is that LA looks a certain way and and is a certain way and downtown Los Angeles is kind of a very strange anomaly it's not just that it's run down it almost kind of looks like it doesn't belong there it looks like it's part of a different city you know when you go into downtown LA you just, you could pick the whole this whole little square block area you could pick it up and Put it down in the middle of Cincinnati, and it would—it looks just like a, a mid-sized Midwest downtown. It has been beautified in recent years. There's been great development in in recent years, and I will say, um, from 1998 onward, about about 20 years or so ago, when the Staples Center opened, and there was the beginning of the great modern modernization of downtown. It did begin to change, and there were things there that young people could have done, and there was a thriving art scene and sort of an offbeat, you know, beat kind of music scene. But underground and low end and hit and miss, and I'm not sure something that was widely known and not as developed in 2013 as it was, say, from 2016, 2017 onward, up until now, the time of the pandemic, when it's, you know, backslid into some despair again. But in 2013, things were just starting to happen, but it doesn't make sense. It it would not be a destination. The only thing I can think of is that somebody was searching online and saw an amazing rate, and thought, well, I can afford this and I'll figure out what to do from there. And and remember, if we do think back to the early 2010s, you know, 12, 13, hotel rates were astronomical in, in Los Angeles. You know, you would have been okay. looking at three, four, five hundred dollars $500 a night to stay in any of those hotspots. So... Um,
0: That does make sense. And if you're not aware of it and you see it's got a really good place and it sure looks good online, you go, okay, I'll give that a shot.
1: And Uh, also, it it could be easy to make that mistake. You know, tourists make that mistake. And this is not by any means an indictment of tourists. It's totally normal to not know something. Nobody can know everything about every city that they're going to. Yes, there were sites, uh, TripAdvisor and places that you could have looked at in those years, though not as really well-known as they are today. And who knows what a 19 or 20-year-old girl might know. So you can't necessarily indict a tourist for accidentally, you know, roaming into what was really a sketchy, very sketchy area. And when you do see the rates over, uh, you know, on Santa Monica Beach, a night. you are like, well, I can't do that. So let's see what else there is. And if you, you see that there's a hotel and, oh, I can walk to the Staples Center from there. It couldn't be too terrible. So, you know, I could kind of see it happening.
0: I can too in considering how um, relatively crime-free Vancouver is. You know, she, this might be a, a total culture shock to her. Uh, tell me the status of the hotel right now. Is it closed for renovations? What are they doing with it?
1: Yeah, my understanding is that it had reclosed again. Is that right? I mean, I'm I'm not 100% sure, but I believe that it's closed again for renovations. Um, you know, I don't know if this place is salvageable um, the really big problem that its owners have is that it's a landmark, so it's a historic landmark. So there's a limit uh, to what they can do. You know, it was rebranded as. Yeah. Um They've tried a couple different things there. Maybe it needs to become a public building of some kind or a museum.
0: Well, the area around it now, I understand, is a whole homeless tent city. So I think it's going to have to either become part of that tent city and accommodate people um, who need homes and then mm-hmm. see where its future takes it. But I can't see it become, it is becoming a tourist destination, just I think for drive-by viewing, not, gee, yeah. I think you am going to check in for the night. It's kind of like the Hotel California, check in and uh-huh. never check out, right?
1: <laughs> that whole area, you know, it's not, it's right on the border of what was technically Skid Row Um, but we also have to now today in 2021 view it in the prism of uh, a a massive wrenching homeless crisis that has taken over so many Los Angeles neighborhoods. It's really um, unfair as journalists, to perhaps stigmatize Skid Row, which was often a landing point for people who were down on their luck and needed some help, Mm -hmm. uh, against the backdrop of 2021, where the city is really in crisis. The entire city is in crisis today. You know, there are neighborhoods throughout the San Fernando Valley where people are living in three and four million dollar homes just steps from yes. encampments that um, really, you know, we cannot do justice to the tragedy and podcast. It has to be seen. Yes. So I do think the, the, the view of the Hotel Cecil being right on top of Skid Row, the context has changed a little bit um, when we look at it today. And, um, you know, it's a much more holistic issue.
0: Jeb Wilker, thanks a lot for your input and your color commentary. Appreciate it. Thanks for being with us.
1: Good to talk to you.
0: Thanks for listening to Primetime Crime, the podcast. Follow us on Facebook at Primetime Crime and on Instagram and Twitter at Primetime Crime Underscore. Post your comments and tell us what true crime stories you'd like to hear about. Subscribe to Primetime Crime on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Thanks a lot.